0: This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Lindsay Bender, the Chief Mycologist for Field and Forest Products Incorporated, a mushroom spawn and supply company located in Wisconsin. I met Lindsay at the Pennsylvania Mother Earth News Fair in 2018 when I stopped by to check in with Laura of Field and Forest, who I've gotten to know over the years through phone calls asking questions about mushrooms and meeting one another at the fair several years ago. This time Lindsay was along for the trip, and once we started talking about all things fungi, she started answering some of my questions in ways that led us to talk about her background and how she became a mycologist after many years studying biology at the undergraduate and graduate levels, which we get into in more depth during her introduction. In this interview, you'll hear about her work on keeping the genetic lines of the fungi used for spawn production healthy, and experiments related to the interactions between fungi, plants, and soil microbiology. She also shares why some mushrooms are commercially viable and others are not, including favorites like morels and why those cannot be reliably grown from spawn, and different ways to shock fungi to force fruiting and induce mushroom production. Whether you're new to mushroom cultivation or have been growing for years, there's something here for everyone to learn more about mushrooms and mycology. Enjoy this conversation with Lindsay, and I'll join you again afterward.
1: I started college with already an interest in biology, and I wasn't quite sure where that would take me, and I'll admit I loved so I wasn't quite motivated to get out as fast as possible. And so I really dabbled in a lot of topics and I took a lot of classes. And what I found is I enjoyed everything. And so in terms of a graduation date and that sort of thing, I dabbled with a bunch of stuff and probably prolonged that, but I really enjoyed learning everything, continuing kind of in the biology, environmental science and ecology sort of fields. But what I found was that I enjoyed birding, for example, and I enjoyed doing snake research and genetics and psychology for a little bit, and it was really hard to really focus on any one thing. What I found working on my bachelor's degree was I took a microbiology class, and that was the first of the kind. I had used a microscope limited you know, prior to that, but that first time, I think we did a cheek cell swab. That first time looking through the microscope and seeing my own cells just peppered with bacteria, and I was mesmerized. It was just so fascinating to see the world that we've lived in all along through the lens of a microscope at that scale. And I just I remember just being enthralled with it and wanting more and more. And I think that's where I first fell in love with microbiology and this concept of really working with microorganisms. So from there, I just continued with those classes. I took Advanced Micro, which had a little bit of a focus on immunology and more of the medical applications. And I was fascinated, but what I really liked is to stick to the environmental science and ecology side of my interest. And that's where I really found my ecology. When I took that class, I had already started developing my thesis project during grad school, which examined soil microorganisms and their relationship to the plants. Around them, and and that was an application of everything I loved. I got to work outside, you know. I got to feel the earth in my hands as I worked with the soil. And furthermore, the education side, as you're working with groups of professors and colleagues on collaborative projects, which are greater in scale than your specific one. And so it's this system wide sort of understanding. And it was just, I absolutely loved that school environment. Um, eventually. I started running out of classes to take, and so I started looking at positions that I could, you know, apply what I had learned and hopefully continue learning. And that's what I found in field and forest products. Really, I left after my master's degree working with soil microorganisms, and I've been so happy to find that I can continue learning, continue doing research, and furthermore, continue working with people and outreach and education. And that was the aspect that I started to. Be very concerned I was going to lose once I entered the work field, is that outreach and talking to people and teaching them about what I am so passionate about. So I'm very happy in the past that sort of kind of fell into my hands as it went along.
0: Did you think you were going to become a research mycologist in industry like this, or were you kind of expecting you'd continue to skirt the line in the academic world?
1: Yeah, honestly, I I thought to myself that I would continue in academia. I just kind of hit this point where I wanted to leave school at least briefly so I could start traveling and do all sorts of other things because when I was really involved in school, I was really involved in school, and so there wasn't a lot of time for other stuff, and so I said, you know, I'll start working in a career, and if it's not for me, then maybe go back for a PhD and continue down this research side. But what I found is that I can work for a wonderful company and continue doing those things that I love, that I was afraid I was going to lose if I left school.
0: And working for a company that specializes in mushrooms and mushroom products, what kind of things are you engaged in in your role as the mycologist for this company?
1: Well, first and foremost, I run the lab here. So a lot of that day-to-day sort of thing is the -the behind-the-scenes Culture maintenance and expansion, working in the lab, product quality and assurance is a big part of what I do on the day-to-day. And then in addition to that, um, it's all sorts of research in developing new products, you know, learning new ways to fruit mushrooms, utilizing new strains and working with them to see how we can, you know, potentially sell them as products in the future. Um, A new movement that we're sort of feeling in the field is... Smaller scale growing for people that don't have land or don't really have an outdoor space to grow. Can they grow inside, you know, smaller scale container gardening, a lot from the gardening sector of things. What can we do to get mushroom growing into their homes? And so that's a big part. We do have some current research projects that we're actually working on with grants and one of which is a polyculturing and analyzing the benefits of co-growing wine cap mushrooms with tomato plants in hopes of measuring this reduction in disease in the tomato plants, improving soil health, and a lot of those variables, so that's very exciting and that's a funded project that's kind of constantly ongoing, but what that brings in is this collaboration with other institutions and really learning more and digging deeper on some of the applications of our product, not just selling a product so people can enjoy growing mushrooms, but also all these other benefits that aren't always quantified.
0: And does that go back then to your research on the relationships between microbiology and plants?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my thesis research certainly was looking at soil microorganisms and the relationship with plants. And kind of this give and take in that plant systems certainly influence the soil microbiology. In this case, I was looking in a forested system where a lot of the previous research had examined the influence of trees because trees are, you know, decades centuries old in a system and their input into the soil layer is so significant in leaves and branches and and as the tree falls and through the root system and that obviously those inputs had been found to be significant. But what about the understory layer? You know, there's so much diversity from seasonally, you know, spring ephemerals in the spring throughout, you know, the season and how that changes. Well, do even those smaller plants have an influence? And what we found is they do. And the more that you look at this relationship between plants and microbiology in really any system, you find how intricate and how involved microorganisms are in everything that we do. And so the application with Field and Forest and what we're doing with this research is just analyzing specifically, for example, the wine cap mushroom or the Almond agaricus or Portobello mushroom and how. They interact with plants, including some vegetables that a lot of people grow. And if there are these benefits and we can measure them, it's just another benefit to a product we already create, but it could also help just generally in systems and improving soil and and that sort of thing that we really want to quantify and get out there to people.
0: And when you're growing the wine caps alongside the tomatoes, are the wine caps fruiting then so that you can harvest the mushrooms or is this just getting a mycelial layer growing with the tomatoes and other plants?
1: Yeah, oftentimes and of course one of the benefits to polyculturing is that you're getting two crops from the same square acreage and so oftentimes we are getting tomato production and wine cap production from the same area while hopefully harnessing these other benefits including soil improvement below that myceliated layer is a multi layer that protects the plant above from the soil organisms below that could cause disease. It reduces soil compaction. It also helps reduce runoff, sun scorching because of that multi-layer. It reduces the need for watering and all sorts of things.
0: And something you mentioned earlier was about culture maintenance. When I spoke with a friend of mine about us having this interview coming up, he mentioned something that he had encountered regarding mushroom cultures and something referred to as senescence and that the cultures can degrade over time. Is that true? Is that something that you've encountered and that's why you need to maintain these lines?
1: Yes, absolutely. So that's a big concern with cultures and especially for a company like us and other culture libraries where you're working with a lot of things and especially providing that as a product, you want to maintain quality. And so, um, senescence is certainly a concern. With every generation of biology and reproduction, there are just by chance the occurrence for genetic mutation. And not all of those are bad. Not all of those even make a difference because there's so much of our genetic code that's non-coding and seemingly not important for at least performance and other things that we measure by growing mushrooms. And so, part of that is just that genetic risk of making a change that could be less ideal than the generation before. And so if you can limit generations or store cultures in a protected environment to reduce the impact or the risk of senescence, then yes, that's a big part of what we do.
0: In your lab, are you doing any kind of genetic profiling in order to see how the lines are changing over time?
1: We don't do it so much on the genetic side. In fact, we do very little of that. We have done some genetic work with a few of the Clytosope species that we were working with, the Woodbluet, Clytosope nuda, and then another one, Clytosope sordida. And there is some debate about the actual genus, but that's the one I'll use today. And we did some genetic work with that just to confirm what species indeed it was Well, prior to offering it as a new product. However, most of what we do in terms of quality assurance and maintenance is based on phenotypic traits. And so it's just observation, becoming familiar with what's normal for a culture, looking at growth rates, also modifying the media that you're growing it on so a culture doesn't become conditioned to what it's consistently growing on. and, And that can kind of lead to this reduction in need to produce other enzymes, if it's constantly given one type of food, then it can kind of streamline towards that. So our job as culture maintenance is to keep an eye on that to make sure it's not degrading, but also continuously kind of reinvigorating the culture to make sure that it remains
0: consistent. And that's an advantage then for your customers whenever they're going to inoculate logs or wood chips or whatever medium that they're on, that it provides a better opportunity for that Mycelium to colonize and then grow vigorously?
1: Yes. So we have all sorts of baseline information on how a culture should colonize a log, what typical yields are. We want to maintain that high quality of a product in those cultures. If at any point we have multiple lines going on, if at any point any of those lines show degeneration or senescence or abnormal growth or behavior, then we either take a step back in generations or move forward with another line. And that's a big part of it because with the expansion process, there are you know, room for errors and changes in cultures, and we want to make sure that we're consistent with that. And if anything, if you notice changes in cultures that could be for the better, then you can move forward with that line and test that.
0: And then when you move forward with a line like that, does that become a different product? or something that you name differently in your catalog because of the new features in growth or size of fruiting body or anything like that?
1: Um, at this point, any changes that we may have noticed wouldn't have been significant to really deem a new product, but it would be a way to maintain an existing product. So one of our existing lines, if we found you know one of the lines performs better, then we would test it, make sure it meets all sorts of standards and then, you know, perhaps pursue that line in the future for the next year of production and then go back and test again. It seems to just naturally occur because of the seasonal fluctuation in our business itself and that spring tends to be busy for our company and just growers in general are planting that typically in winter is when we're looking and reassessing lines and selecting and making sure that we're producing and expanding a good quality line.
0: It sounds like a lot of monitoring and ongoing improvement in order to ensure that you're delivering something of quality and consistency to your clients year after year.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm a nerd at heart, so I truly get excited about data collection and observation. And so this fits perfectly with the way I am. and. You know, providing that consistency and attention to detail is is fantastic.
0: It reminds me a bit of a friend of mine who was a huge baseball fan who always liked it when they would introduce a new statistic to baseball because it was something else that he could nerd out on and learn. And I just think about all these, these different lines and how they change from year to year. They're like your new players who come in and all these different things that you can track and follow, both from like the hard data that you might quantify. As well as all the qualitative information that you might share with a client based on the color of a mushroom or the way that it's going to present itself in its body shape. It's an amazing space to nerd out in.
1: Absolutely.
0: And when it does come to your clients working on a smaller scale, you mentioned earlier looking for ways that people can kind of garden with mushrooms. And when I was there at Mother Earth this year, you had a number of countertop grow blocks and things that people might want to use in order to get their first flushes of mushrooms before they might cut logs or put something in a backyard or perhaps it's somebody who's in a an apartment environment. When you're working on that, what kind of mushrooms are you finding are best suited for those kinds of environments?
1: That was our tabletop farm or several other mushroom growing kits. And the idea of, you know, behind that sort of product is that Everything that we can do, we've done. So when we send it out, it's ready to produce mushrooms. The customer simply has to set it up. And that's a fantastic introduction to growing mushrooms. It's simple. It can be done indoors on any sort of surface or environment. Because you essentially follow the instructions, create a microclimate ideal for mushroom growing, and it's extremely quick. You know, the oyster or the shiitake or lion's mane, within a week or two from opening it up, is already producing its first flush of mushrooms. And so for somebody completely new to the field, this is a great way to quickly see how fascinating growing fungi can be. And then, of course, there's different varieties, and so they can try the flavors, they can feel the textures and test their growing conditions um, without that huge sort of investment in labor necessarily with cutting logs and that sort of longer-term thing. And so these kits are great. It's a great way to be introduced to different mushrooms. And one of the ways we can do that to ensure this high success rate with beginner growers that may not know all the conditions or all the information to grow on other platforms, these kits are simple. They're easy to do. And the reason being is because the strains that we select basically fruit without stimulation. And so they produce mushrooms without any sort of shocking or other method to stimulate mushrooms. That's one thing. They grow quickly. That way there's less time for error on the grower's behalf. Um, they grow in conditions typical to people's indoor homes or environments. So they work in a wide variety. Anything to really improve the success rate, which with tabletop farms is about 100%. So it's an enjoyable, low-stress, low-maintenance sort of experience.
0: And I can say from my own experience of cutting and plugging logs that my first round of shiitake from my smaller logs, which were about four and a half to 5 inches in diameter, I had my first flush the following spring, but I had some larger logs that were more like an 8 to 10 inch that took over two years to finally see that the log had fully colonized and then another two years before I got my first flush from.
1: So certainly the tabletop farms in these kits are for the fast mushroom grower. It's a great way for people that primarily rely on those longer-term uh, fruiting methods like logs, which is the standard for shiitake cultivation even here in the U.S. still, but you can fill in those gaps with the tabletop farms or the sawdust blocks that are ready to fruit mushrooms, because it is faster. The drawback is it's shorter time, and so one of those kits may produce multiple flushes, even seven or eight flushes over the period of two to three months. However, those logs, they were a long-term investment for you, but they can also produce mushrooms for many years. We have shiitake logs here and maitake logs here that have produced going on seven or eight years even. And so if you have that material, you have the logs, and there are tools out there to help reduce the strain and the amount of work to inoculate. Oftentimes our customers love to do inoculation parties where they actually invite others to join them. It's a way to teach people and spread the word about mushroom growing, which is something everyone can do. You know, on resources that oftentimes people have in shiitake and other log grown ones, it's access to fresh cut wood. If you're growing oysters on straw, it's access to straw, wine cap on wood chips and straw, so that sort of thing. But it really is, you know, a matter of the timing. And like you said, your logs certainly took a few years before fruiting. Well, those logs are capable of producing mushrooms from that one planting for many years. And so that's our job as a mushroom spawn company is to provide options. Short-term for the quick grower or the easy gift, long-term options for planting logs, that sort of thing to get that longer-term feedback. And oftentimes what our customers find is they like a a mix of everything. That way they have a constant demand year-round of mushrooms.
0: And though the deer often get to my mushrooms before I do, My smaller shiitake logs are going on their fifth or sixth year of still producing mushrooms. And then the larger logs that I used, they don't flush as often, but the wood is still in fantastic shape, and I'm expecting probably another four or five years out of those easily. And it's just amazing that, though it seemed like a lot of labor the first day that we put into it, because it was just me, my buddy, and my son with a drill, just drilling hole after hole after hole to put the plugs in, that once you do that day of work, you just have mushrooms for years and years to come.
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: Yeah. And it's one of the things that I like about the tabletop farm, as you say, is that you can try all of these different flavors and these different mushrooms in a quick and easy-to-grow kit. And what I noticed with what you're providing, when I go to my local farmer's market, oyster mushrooms can run 8 to $12 a pound, and that it's easy to recoup the investment in a tabletop farm in the couple of flushes that you'll get over those several months, that they really do represent a good value for someone who's interested in mushrooms in kind of like a low-risk investment.
1: Certainly. And not only is it fun and simple, but you are getting actual food from it that you grew yourself. And so you have that rewarding side of it and that you're growing organic mushrooms that are healthy. You're investigating new recipes and putting them on the dinner table. So it's a very rewarding experience, and it truly is the same with any way of cultivating mushrooms. I was speaking with Mary Ellen this morning, and she just talked about entering the laying yard where all of our shiitake logs are the first time every spring, and how invigorating that is to be surrounded by these stacks of logs that, you know, will continue to produce for years, but you put them here, and it's in harmony with the nature and just observing that work and going through and harvesting these high-quality shiitake mushrooms that you can enjoy, whether it's shiitake butter or roasting them and all sorts of things that you can do with it. It's that rewarding nature to really grow your own food and kind of get back to the basics.
0: And in growing our own food, you mentioned lion's mane and oyster and shiitake. What are some of the other interesting edible mushrooms that you recently brought to market or are currently working on developing for folks?
1: So we are currently working on maitake. That's a unique log-grown one, but can also be cultivated and grown from sawdust blocks. That one's a little more challenging in that it typically requires the log that's planted to be treated prior to planting. And so we're working out the kinks with other ways that the average home grower can eat more easily plant that one. But that's a wonderful fall fruiter. It's one of the best flavored mushrooms, I believe, in my opinion, um, and I'm sure a lot of people would also agree with that. The king oyster is a unique oyster in the Pleurotus genus that is a lot more dense. People oftentimes eat the stem, and it's a really unique oyster option for people, and that's commonly grown on sawdust blocks, so we're also working with that. Other ones include, of course, the wine cap, an almond portobello mushroom. Both of those are bed-based cultivated mushrooms. And so oftentimes that's one of the easiest ones to plant because it's simply a matter of finding a shady location or a location where you can water your bed, laying down the materials and simply planting the spawn in there. In addition to that, uh, there's always other options like Namaco is a beautiful fall fruiter. That one can tend to be a nutty one and crunchy in texture. So there's another option there, and certainly other ones.
0: Now, one of the conversations that we had at Mother was about some of the mushrooms that currently can't be cultivated. What are some of the ones there that you'd be interested in cultivating if we could, or that you get a lot of requests for?
1: The most elusive one and the most requested would be the morale mushroom. And then chanterelle would probably be the second. And that's a complicated one. And it's certainly something, especially with the morel, that there's decades of research and documentation of people really working on that one. We can certainly produce morel spawn. But when it comes to actual carry through and fruiting and fruiting success and yield, that one can be very challenging. So one of the biggest things with mushroom cultivation is whether you're going to try to grow indoors or utilize an outdoor space. And oftentimes, mushrooms can easily be grown in both. Oyster mushrooms, for example, are an example of that. Also, shiitake mushrooms. And then there are some that are a little more challenging to grow in artificial conditions, like the wine cap mushroom. It's one of the simplest to grow outside in a bed, but rather challenging to grow indoors in tubs or other artificial conditions. And the reason being is it seems as though it needs this interaction with the soil. And there's something in nature that helps stimulate the production of this mushroom. And it's even more complicated when you begin examining morels and chanterelles, in that it seems like those fungi actually require this interaction with not only the soil, but local plants. And we've all seen where a tree falls or a tree becomes diseased and the morels spring up the following year. It seems to almost be in response to the condition of the plant that it has this relationship to. And unfortunately, in terms of cultivation, that relationship is not well enough understood to replicate it. And when you're growing mushrooms, oftentimes people want production and yield. And so, That is certainly one that not only there's this brand recognition, everyone has heard of how delicious and exciting it is to find morels. So we would love to be able to provide spawn for that, but we want to make sure that it will lead to mushrooms. And so that's the biggest downfall is we're still working on how to get that one to fruit.
0: You say that you can produce spawn for morels. When you're doing that, is that a clonal culture that provides you with the mycelium then that could be used as a spawn but it just doesn't produce then or are you trying to get I don't know, do morels produce spores then that could be used? Like what is that like compared to really I guess my question is what is it like to produce spawn for something? Is it like raising mushrooms for seed? I realize that I've never really thought about that before. Yeah, so
1: the the basic fungal life cycle is that a morel is the short-term fruiting body. It's the reproductive sort of unit that disperses the reproductive cells. In this case, in a fungi's case, it's spores. And so that fruiting body, whether it's an oyster mushroom or a shiitake or a morel mushroom, they release spores into the environment. And somewhere in nature, two spores meet, they hit it off, and they can produce hyphae or these root structures then after they've basically merged together, that's capable then of fruiting its own mushroom. And so with spawn production, you're basically amplifying or continuously expanding that stage after two spores have met and bred together, and it's amplifying that stage of hyphae or mycelium is what we call it, that's already capable of producing mushrooms. And so there are oftentimes people will say if you harvest morels in nature, do a spore wash and spread that water that has you know millions and billions and trillions of spores out into an area where it could be good for morel growing or fruiting. But you're really just rolling the dice and maybe that works or maybe it doesn't. But with spawn, you're actually providing a culture that is already capable of producing mushrooms.
0: So it's kind of the difference between. Purchasing seeds versus buying a plant at your garden center?
1: In a way, but those seeds that are produced are already capable of fruiting. And so you would plant the seed and produce the mushrooms, and that's basically what spawn is. But if you were to, say, purchase pollen, for example, well, that would be the spore or a rough analogy of that sort of thing. And so the spore mating is sort of mad scientist work done in a lab or nature does it yourself. And um, you can certainly tissue culture from mushrooms existing in nature. But typically as spawn, you're using a culture that's commercially productive and high quality and a consistent producer. And so it's your job to kind of amplify that high quality culture.
0: So many things that I did not know about mushroom cultivation.
1: It can certainly be technical, but as a spawn company, that's what we're responsible for doing.
0: Yeah, and well and when you're talking about morels, I I can think of like a half a dozen different folk methods that I've heard for trying to get them to spawn from, you know, leaving a portion of the mushroom when you harvest them to, you know, burning an area in order to produce like a bare ashen surface near where you found morels growing before, and all these other different methods, but it sounds like we're still kind of guessing on what those particular relationships are in order to get that mushroom to produce more fruit in the future.
1: Right. In the case with the morels, a lot of those methods, like burning an area, you're basically shocking that area, and if the morel is present, oftentimes it could respond to that stressor. And so in thinking about mushrooms, and this kind of goes back to why some cultures are better for tabletop farms or ready-to-fruit blocks, is that you need to be able to stimulate mushroom production because a culture can sit there, but unless the conditions are right for that culture, it may not produce mushrooms. And this is the case with the fall fruiting only, is that you may plant a maitake log or it's the hen of the woods. You may plant one of those logs, but it won't fruit in the spring and it won't fruit in the summer, but it will fruit in the fall when the conditions are right for it. And so with morels, we can produce the spawn and people can plant, or you can harvest morels from an area, but it doesn't guarantee that they will fruit the following spring unless the conditions are right. And unfortunately, at this point, we don't quite know what that is. Now, they have found that fire can induce fruiting, and they've found that if in an apple orchard, for example, an apple tree succumbs to disease and starts to die off, oftentimes that can stimulate morels to fruit below that. But those sorts of relationships and stimuli, we're not always able to consistently reproduce in order to get the mushrooms to fruit.
0: And that thought of shocking with fire for morels would be similar to soaking a shiitake log?
1: Correct, yes. So with shiitake, that's one of those mushrooms that always responds very well to shocking or forced fruiting. And not all shiitake strains are that way, but most of them are. And that's an important question if you do get into shiitake cultivation. If you'd like to do this, forced fruiting is an excellent way to basically schedule mushroom production, which is fantastic for market growers that want to provide a weekly supply of mushrooms. Well, the shocking or forced fruiting, and I use those those terms interchangeably, so I apologize, but that essentially means to soak those logs in cold water for 12 to 24 hours. Typically, we do that overnight. And that temperature change, but also that massive hydration event really stimulates forced fruiting. And typically, 7 to 10 days later, depending on the temperature, those logs are producing mushrooms. So, it's a great way to schedule but also maximize production and output. Temperature change is one of those shocking or stressors that can induce fruiting. A fire, for example, for soil-borne fungi to fruit, that can be another thing. We've even heard or I've read articles on electroshocking for shiitake production. So, that's another option, although it's not something that we do at Field & Forest. So, I can't say for sure.
0: Are the other commonly available mushrooms ones that you can shock like oyster or lion's mane or portabella?
1: No, those are going to be more opportunistic in that they will fruit spontaneously often only when conditions are right. And so what we can do as growers is we can do our best to provide conditions to maximize production. And in the case of say wine cap or almond agaricus, those are bed-grown ones. Well, if we can produce or plant a bed in an ideal location to maximize this mushroom's ability to produce you know, a shady area with high moisture retention or we can monitor it and water it, oftentimes we can really maximize the capabilities of that bed. And so we do have a say in production by providing that culture the best possible fruiting conditions and it it goes the same with oysters on straw for example in that if you can provide the best possible conditions you can improve yield but those actually just fruit when the conditions are right spontaneously and there's no way to really put them on schedule but you can get to know some of the cultures and project when they should be fruiting depending on seasonality or timing of planting and when they'll be producing and so you can get a really good feel with some experience or knowledge on that for when they will produce but shiitake is really the only one that you can force fruit
0: and that explains then why shiitake is so popular among many of the growers because you can put it on schedule like that so readily yes exactly but what you described there for the others that are more opportunistic The way that you walk us through that, it really does remind me more of that we can garden for mushrooms if we want to, similar to the relationships that we might have with other plants, whether ornamental, annual, or perennial. We know that they'll produce. It's just a matter of creating and maintaining the right conditions to do so. And that really, that kind of a relational experience, in some ways, demystifies some of the unknowns when it comes to growing mushrooms, that we can more just trust in the process and do our best and know that through that, we'll be able to provide ourselves with food for our family or for market.
1: Absolutely. Yes. That is one of the things that field and forest products and mushroom growers really like to talk about with mushroom growing is that it can be as simple as opening up a sawdust block to as, even though planting on logs is not complicated, but it's a longer-term endeavor with some work up front. But there's all sorts of avenues for mushroom growing, and it can be very passive. That's one of the benefits is you're not only oftentimes utilizing a resource that you already have access to, but you can incorporate it into a landscape that you're already cultivating, say, garden vegetables, where you can plant a wine cap or almond agaricus bed in that same space. And if a tree fell from, you know, a recent storm, you can utilize that for shiitake or oyster, lion's mane cultivation on logs. If there are wood chips from the local municipality because they're chipping up logs, I mean, that's a resource that oftentimes is free that you can utilize. And it's not just growing your own food. And this is something that all gardeners and outdoorsy people can relate to is that there's more to it than that there's this feeling of connection with nature that pride in growing your own food and harvesting it and that, you know, looking into a new hobby and learning about this kingdom fungi that is somewhat unknown to a lot of people. And certainly our job at Field and Forest Products is to demystify some of those things that keep people from even trying mushroom growing, which truly can be simple.
0: I really appreciate all the places that you took us today, Lindsay, in walking through what it is to grow mushrooms, how we can learn more about them, whether we want to do so as a backyard gardener or as an academic mycologist, and all the work that you're doing to make sure that we have high quality spawn available should we want to grow, whether on the tabletop or indoors or out in a log or a prepared bed. But before we draw this conversation to a close, is there anything else from your knowledge or experience that you'd like to share with the listeners?
1: I guess I always just like to really reiterate how unique this is and how fascinating it can be. And so I really encourage people that are interested. There are a lot of resources out there and certainly a lot of benefits that span from just enjoying nature to even the medicinal benefits of fungi which is a growing topic out there. I really encourage people just to investigate more. I mean, not only learning about fungi, but other things. There's so many resources out there that can really expand on your just overall enjoyment and happiness.
0: And that was Lindsay Bender, Chief Mycologist for Field and Forest Products Incorporated. Find out more about their work at fieldforest.net. Of everything I've raised over the years, with the exception of children, Mushrooms were the one thing that I found the most intimidating to get started with. They're not part of the gardening plans or ideas I grew up with. I'd helped my parents raise strawberries and onions from my earliest memories, with my mother keeping herbs in a window box from time to time, and of course planting trees with my father, the Boy Scouts, and different volunteer organizations. Yet, all of my interactions with mushrooms, with the exception of one foraging trip with some of my aunts as a child, really revolved around buying button mushrooms in cellophane-wrapped packages, some oyster mushrooms from the occasional seller at the farmers market, and taking pictures of any that I found while out hiking. They just were not part of my growing or permaculture practices for many years. But as more information became available on integrating mushrooms into our designs, such as through the work of the instructor and designer Steve Gabriel of Wellspring Forest Farm, this was something that I wanted to explore. And so I looked at shiitake as they were one of the varieties recommended for beginners. So when I started searching for shiitake mushroom spawn, Field & Forest was one of the easiest companies to find and work with at the time. It seems like there are spawn companies everywhere these days, but back, I don't know, eight years ago or so, there were only a handful. And so I called and talked to Laura to decide what mushroom variety was right for my wet, temperate home. And from those conversations, decided to inoculate logs with plug spawn. Like with this conversation with Lindsay today, where she expanded on protecting lines and using mushrooms at home or commercially. Talking to Lara, she pointed me to more information on why we need to use fresh-cut wood rather than dead, hardwood over softwood, and logs versus chips, depending on the variety of mushroom. This knowledge and ongoing research makes growing mushrooms more accessible today than just a few years ago. Where there were only a handful of strains, there are now dozens. We have access, in many cases, to sawdust or plug spawn. You can choose to inoculate logs, the wood chip mulch in your garden, or start with a pre-built tabletop kit that you can harvest within days wherever you live. Now more than ever, if you want to include mushrooms in your permaculture design or education, there are many options available, and companies like Field & Forest Products continue to develop new lines to meet your needs. If there's something specific you're looking for or you want to get started, Give them a call and they can point you in the right direction. What did you think of this conversation with Lindsay? Does it change your view of mushrooms, mushroom growing, and what is possible? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Visit ThePermaculturePodcast.com and click on Contact to send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Until the next time, spend each day learning more about mushrooms and taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. The Permaculture Podcast is a production of Permaneo Group. Find out more about the Permaculture Podcast, including the extensive archives, by visiting our website, thepermaculturepodcast.com. Learn more about Permaneo Group and other projects at permaneogroup.com.